Charles here. Welcome to the 70th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Kara Messina as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series. The course itself was already sort of focused on digital activism, how people create community, uh, things like content moderation, things like hashtags, right? Uh, how information can spread. And then, of course, the actual writing practices we do in all of that. So my course towards the end became much more focused on providing a space for students to explore their own digital activist identities and sort of become the digital activists that they want to become. You'll hear more from Kara in a bit. But first, I want to alert you to a new book that is available now from the WAC Clearinghouse. Race, Rhetoric, and Research Methods is by Alexandria L. Lockett, Iris D. Ruiz, James Chase Sanchez, and Christopher Carter. It explores multiple anti-racist, decolonial forms of study that are relevant to 21st century knowledge production about language, communication, technology, and culture. The book presents a rare collaboration among scholars representing different racial and ethnic backgrounds, genders, and ranks within the field of rhetoric, composition, and writing studies. In each chapter, the authors examine the significance of their individual experiences with race and racism across contexts. Their research engages the politics of embodiment, institutional critique, multimodal rhetoric, materiality, and public digital literacies. The book merges impassioned storytelling with unflinching analysis, offering a multi-voiced argument that spotlights the field's troubled history with theorizing about race and epistemology. Although the authors directly address aspiring and current RCWS professionals, they model how a comprehensive consideration of race adds legitimacy and integrity to any subject of study. This co-authored work charts uncommon paths forward, demonstrating reflexive engagement with legacies that are personal and transnational, as well as with technologies that are both dehumanizing and liberating. That's a description from the promotional materials from the WAC Clearinghouse, which is where you can find the book online. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series is specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. And don't forget, this season we introduce the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. 
so far this season, we have heard from scholars from all over, including Christian Brothers University, Iowa State, the University of Colorado, Florida International University, the University of Delaware, Barry College, and Syracuse University. Today, we talk to Dr. Kara Messina from Northeastern University. For now, Dr. Kara Marta Messina recently received her PhD from Northeastern University English Department focusing on writing and rhetoric. Her digital dissertation, The Critical Fan Toolkit, Fan Fiction Genres, Ideologies, and Pedagogies, explores critical fan fiction writing practices, critical fan authors' processes, and their pedagogical values inside and outside traditional classrooms. She received the 2019 Kairos Graduate Student Teaching Award. Starting in fall 2021, Kara is going to be an assistant professor of English in professional writing at Jacksonville State University. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kara Messina. Tell me, who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Yeah, I am Cara Marta Messina. I am currently a PhD candidate at Northeastern University in the English department. I'm focusing on writing and rhetoric specifically. I uh, am defending my dissertation on March 25th, 2021, so hopefully I won't be a PhD candidate much longer. We'll see. <laughs> Um, and, uh, can I like make an announcement about my job too here and like say my, yeah, if you want to, because it was, I wanted to ask, you know, could we talk about it, but I wanted to leave that in your court. So go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really lucky enough that I was offered a, uh, position as assistant professor of English, specifically in professional writing at Jacksonville state university in Alabama. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Oh, I didn't even realize you're in Birmingham. Oh my God, that's so exciting. We'll have to hang out. Listeners, I'm holding up a shirt that I'm wearing today uh, that says Birmingham on it. That's fantastic yes. news. Congratulations. Thank you. And Jacksonville State is in Anniston, right? Alabama? Yeah, I think it's actually in Jacksonville. But Jacksonville. It's like, it's like the you know college town and yeah. right next to it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, congratulations. Thank That's you. great news. So what are you most excited about? What are you most excited about, about moving uh, and, and working at Jacksonville State? Yeah. Uh, so I, first of all, I've never been to Alabama, so I'm really excited to go to Alabama. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a whole other adventure. I'm from New York uh, City originally, from Queens, and I, I live in Boston right now. Um, so pretty much my whole life I've grown up in, in like cities, uh, you know, surrounded by people. I've never really had like a, a true backyard. You know, I had like a little concrete backyard that we shared with our neighbors. Um, so I'm really excited to like have a house with my own lawn and my own space. So that's really, that's going to be fun. Um, and as for like the university itself, uh, I think the English department is in a really cool transition period where they're hiring a lot of new candidates. Um, 
So last year they hired two new creative writing professors. This year they're hiring a bunch of new people. Next year, I think they're still going to be hiring. So the, the department is in sort of this transition period. So I'm really excited to be getting in there right as this is happening. Um, so we can sort of all think about what we want the department to look like, how we want to sort of reshape the curriculum, how we want to work with students, how we want to work with each other. So I think it's going to be really cool to sort of like be there with like all these sort of, you know, newer generation assistant professors who are like, let's reimagine these spaces. <laughs> that is exciting. I got to say, like, um, I talked to a lot of folks and I'm not talking to someone who's just accepted a position and such an exciting position at that. Uh, congratulations, Kara. Oh, Thank my goodness. You. Thank I, um, you so much. I'll have to give you some pointers about living in Alabama. Um, I'm not there now. I'm in central Illinois, but uh, Birmingham born and bred. So. <laughs> yes, I would love pointers and places you like to go that are awesome and neighborhoods that are really fun. I I would love all of those. And visit <laughs> Alabama or come back to Alabama. We'll hang out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you said you're from New York City, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is actually really perfect. Like I'm from Alabama. So I have the big yard, right? That you're looking forward to, and and you're from New York City. Um, I don't really know, like, what's the question to ask because you're so many places to grow up in New York City, right? But where where did you grow up in New York City? Uh, so I grew up in Queens, um, in sort of around like the Flushing area, so really like Eastern Queens. Um, right by Long Island. My my friend who's also from Queens likes to joke that I'm from Long Island. It's like I don't know, but it's like a thing where between Queens and Long Island where there's like tension, you know, <laughs> like, are you from Queens oh, yeah. or Long Island? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he likes to always make fun of me because I lived like right on the border and he's like, you're from Long Island. <laughs> um, but uh, I grew up there and and pretty much my, my family has been in Queens for quite a long time. So on both sides of my family, my dad's side and my mom's side. Um, Big family? Uh, uh, sorry? Big family? Yeah, yeah. Um, my dad's side is a little smaller. Um, so his his parents are um, Italian, and I think both of their parents uh, immigrated from Italy uh, to uh, New York. And yeah, because his grandma was definitely Italian. Um, and they're sort of a little bit of a smaller family. He doesn't have any siblings, but my mom's family is Irish. And <laughs> I don't actually know when they immigrated. <laughs> But I think they've been in Queens for quite some time. And so there's like a billion of them. Like my mom has two siblings and then she has like 50 cousins and then they all have children. So. Okay. <laughs> What's your dad do? Uh, my dad is, uh, he's actually a computer software um, developer uh, and he's okay. a programmer. Yeah, he's been, um, he's like, he used to work at like Bell Labs in the in 1970s and, um, you know, it's sort of like, one of those people who was like really into computers before it was really popular. Yeah. It was on the internet in like the 1980s, you know? Yeah. What about mom? <laughs> yeah. What and about now, mom? Oh, um, she is uh, a nurse and she used to work at the visiting nurse service. And now she is, uh, she is not working right now, but she's re looking for a job. She was taking care of my grandpa who has dementia. I'm sorry, Alzheimer's. I don't think dementia is the correct word. Um, he has Alzheimer's, so she's been taking care of him, uh, but now she's looking for a job. So Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> there you all are. Some big things going on in the Messina family, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Um, so is St. John's in, in near Flushing, in, near Queens, is that how you wound up there? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's in Jamaica. Uh, sorry, Jamaica. Uh, just Jamaica. I almost said Jamaica Plain, which is in Boston. Uh-huh. So St. John's is in Jamaica, and it's about a 10-minute drive from the house I grew up in. And I originally went to St. John's because I uh, applied for other colleges that were uh, further away and I'd have to travel. And I like woke up in the middle of the night and I was like <laughs> freaking out. And I went to my mom and I was like, I can't leave. I don't want to leave. I'm not ready to like go to college yet. Yeah. And she was like, okay, well, we'll find you like someplace close by and someplace local and we'll get you there. So I went to St. John's sort of like imagining that I was going to transfer the next year when I felt more comfortable. Um, but I wound up falling in love with St. John's and I w- worked at the writing center at St. John's in my sophomore year and the writing center there changed my life. Um, I worked with Harry Denny and Ann Geller um, and they were just like fundamental in getting me into writing and rhetoric. Um, so I, I, it, it actually worked out really well. <laughs> yeah. You got your MA there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, they have like, um, a five-year program where you can get your master's as you're getting your bachelor's. Uh, so I, uh, started taking graduate classes in my, um, junior year and got my master's a year after I got my bachelor's. So after you finished up your master's degree, you went on to get the PhD, right, at Northeastern University. Is that something that you'd always wanted to do, or is it something that you found yourself doing? Yeah. Um, so I, I took a year between my master's and PhD because I was like, do I want do I want to spend five years at a PhD program? Like, is that the thing that I want to do? Do I want to teach? Like, do I want to go down this path? Um, so I taught at St. John's for a year, and I loved teaching. So I was like, I, I want to get a PhD. I want to teach and I want to be in higher ed. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. Um, originally, I I think when I was like in high school, I was like, I am not going to be a teacher. That is not the thing I'm going to do. <laughs> high school, Kara would be like, what happened? <laughs> So tell us a little bit, where is Northeastern University? I can't, is it in Boston? Yes. Yeah, okay, it's in Boston. It's a, excellent. And you are finishing up and proofreading your dissertation, which is titled The Critical Fan Toolkit, Fan Fiction Genres, Ideologies, and Pedagogies. And your committee is Maya Poe, Ellen Cushman, Neil Lerner, and Laura Nelson. Uh, tell us a little bit about, give us that elevator spiel, I guess. What's your dissertation <laughs> project about? So uh, the Critical Fan Toolkit is an entirely digital dissertation that I published on a, a website that is currently available. Uh, obviously, I still need to defend, so it's not perfect yet, but <laughs> it's there. And what I look at is how uh, fan fiction authors implement critical practices into their fan fiction um, composing choices. So I look at both metadata from uh, fan fiction as well as the text, the texts from fan fiction itself. Um, and I interviewed six uh, fan authors who published in the in the sort of fan fiction corpus I'm looking at. Uh, and the fan fiction I'm looking at is all published on Archive of Our Own, uh, and it's Game of Thrones and The Legend of Korra fan fiction. <laughs> and what I'm really interested in is how fans 
both um, potentially reinscribe or subvert dominant ideologies that are either within the uh, source texts or within their own Dan communities. So for instance, like Game of Thrones, you know, uh, is a really white show and white supremacy is sort of, uh, you know, embedded within uh, the show. Uh, and uh, fans really <laughs> sort of overall fan patterns, like take up that white supremacy and they like it reifies through fandom patterns and practices. But I'm really interested in those people who are pushing against that in their fan fiction. I guess that was longer than an elevator pitch. <laughs> no, that was that was perfect, perfectly timed. Um, so I have a couple of questions for you. Yes. Um, for someone who doesn't know what fan fiction is, that's listening to this podcast. What's fan fiction? Just a really quick definition. Yeah, fan fiction is uh, exactly really how it sounds: is fiction written by fans, right? <laughs> um, so the fans are usually of some kind of cultural material, whether it's a television show or a movie or a, a book or even celebrities. And the fiction that they're writing is usually taking characters um, or plot lines or universes from the sort of cultural material that they love and doing something with it, some kind of transformative work that they're doing. Um, so like a really sort of big example is Harry Potter. There's a lot, there's like millions upon millions of fan fictions out there about Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, where, you know, fan authors are reimagining uh, different characters or original characters at Hogwarts, or they're uh, taking the Harry Potter characters and putting them in like a modern setting or like a modern high school or something like that, or they're exploring characters' backstory, right? Sort of all different ways to approach uh, storytelling. Yeah. Okay. So we there's Harry Potter fan fiction, all kinds of fan fiction out there. Um, you look at Game of Thrones, right? And what's the other fan fiction you look at? The Legend of Korra. The Legend of Korra. Go ahead. Yeah, what is that? Uh, the Legend of Korra is the sequel to Avatar The Last Airbender, um, which was a show on Nickelodeon. Um, and The Legend of Korra is about the next Avatar after Aang. And uh, I chose both of those shows uh, because they're, they're very different in their politics. So uh, Game of Thrones, again, sort of is this, like, show that that where white supremacy sort of reigns, right? You, you And it's, it's sort of almost celebrated. A lot of the actors are white um, and the characters who are played by actors of color are often sort of uh, either pushed to the side or not given the same agency as the white characters or like just kind of overall racist stereotypes. Like the Dothraki people are like portrayed as savage and, you know, uh, they're nomadic and, and violent. Um, and, uh, you know, there's uh, Slaver's Bay, um, where there's a lot of people of color. And then uh, all the white characters are sort of in another area where they're, like, fighting over politics and, you know, European, like, monarchies. <laughs> so, um, and the show itself, too, it, it, it continues that violence, um, especially towards women and women of color. Um, there are a lot of sort of... Uh, there's just a lot of different types of violence that are that are portrayed. And if you're familiar with Game of Thrones at all, you know, you know that, that violence is there. Um, meanwhile, the legend of Korra is very different. Uh, Korra is a bisexual woman of color, um, and she is 
uh, sort of hot-headed and fiery, but she's also very vulnerable. Um, and uh, the show itself exists in a universe that uh, is built off of um, non-Western cultures and sort of celebrates non-Western cultures too. So the show is sort of resisting white supremacy already. Um, and Cora is just amazing. She's sort of like gender non-conforming. She's very muscular. Uh, in the show too, someone, uh, her ex-boyfriend's grandma is like, you're very muscular for a girl. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> Even in the show, there's like this awareness of gender roles and how she's pushing against those conventions. Uh, so that's why I chose them, because I wanted to see sort of how different the uh, fandoms were and if they sort of replicated those patterns. So we know that Game of Thrones is a cult- was a cultural phenomenon, really, when it came out. And you mentioned some of the things like violence against women and uh, white supremacy permeating the show. Can we investigate that a little bit further, right, with more tangible examples? Um Mostly because I'm a little bit interested in Game of Thrones, but also I think a lot of our listeners probably are too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess I guess I'll sort of start off with how the layout of of the worlds work, right? So there's okay um, Westeros and Essos. Essos, I forgot how it's pronounced. And Westeros is like where sort of all again that like European monarchy stuff is happening, right? There's you know. Uh, 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 King Joffrey and Queen Cersei and everyone's fighting for the throne, right? And then there's Essos, which is, you know, the, the sort of uh, land across the sea. Uh, and in Westeros, people are sort of terrified of Essos, right? They see Essos as this, like, place where you go when you banish someone, right? Like Daenerys Targaryen is banished to Essos, or I guess she flees to Essos, right? Um, and, you know, she's uh, sort of protected and taken uh, taken over by the uh, the Dothraki peoples. And, you know, in the first season, we sort of see the Dothraki again sort of portrayed as uh, sort of savages, right? They're this nomadic tribe. Uh, a lot of their culture revolves around violence in some way, right? Which is reinscribing the idea of, of savagery that we often saw, especially with like colonization, uh, of how uh, white colonizers talked about indigenous peoples. Um, so Daenerys, you know, becomes uh, one of the leaders, right? She becomes a uh, Khaleesi of, of the Dothraki peoples. And uh, later on, she is uh, pushed away from being Khaleesi and then she comes back and tries to reclaim her throne uh, and does reclaim her throne for sort of the Dothraki people. And there's this scene where she's being carried by like a sea of brown arms. So you see like her sort of stark white skin in comparison. Yeah, to these I remember hands. that. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of like this, this like very intense moment that I think is supposed to be critiquing like white saviorism. I don't really know, <laughs> but they never quite get there, right? Because then you get to season eight where she's still Khaleesi and she's still leading the Dothraki people. And she like, you know, kind of throws them to, to their death so that she can take over the throne at, <laughs> at a Westeros. Um, and the sort of fears of the people of Westeros, of the people of Essos are confirmed, right? When she, you know, annihilates right, an right. entire city, right? Yeah. Um so the show like gets to these points where it starts to sort of critique 
colonialism and, and politics in this way that's really interesting. But I think season eight, and I'm sure you know a lot of people who are watching, sort of a lot of people who watch Game of Thrones season eight are like, "Well, oh, season eight was so bad." Cause it was, <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, season eight sort of undoes any of that work, right? Um, and then there is the case of Missandei, who is my favorite character. Uh, Missandei is uh, is a young black woman who um, liberated herself really from slavery and um, was on a mission to liberate any other enslaved peoples um, across both Essos and, and Westeros, right? That's why she was sort of with Daenerys because she wants to liberate people. Um, and in the final season, she is captured by Queen Cersei and beheaded publicly. Um, and it's this like really painful and awful moment. Um, and her partner, Grey Worm, is watching. He doesn't get any time to really mourn her death, right? We don't get to see him really mourning it the way that, you know, we see him sort of reacting is by murdering everyone, right? And following Daenerys and murdering the entire King's Landing, all the King's Landing peoples. Um, but we don't get to see him grieving uh, her her death. Um, and there's this really great. So in 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 my dissertation, I interviewed someone who wrote about Game of Thrones and wrote about Miss Andai's uh, death scene. And she says something along the lines of, you know, Miss Andai is escaped slavery and she uh, liberated herself and she is liberating others and she dies the, I think the quote is pretty much she dies in chains in a pissing contest between two white women which is like just the perfect way of describing it right her entire story and character arc this like amazing liberatory arc is just undone completely as she's like brought to the wall in chains and beheaded for like Queen Cersei's political gain pretty much you mentioned why it was important to you to investigate Game of Thrones and and I can't remember the other name Cora. Oh, what was yeah, it yeah, called yeah. again? <laughs> Legend Co- of Cora. Yeah, you Legend of Cora. Okay. Um, I keep thinking of Zelda. I know it's not Zelda. I know it's Cora. Legend of Cora. Um, but why is it important for for scholars in rhetoric, composition, techcom to interrogate fan fiction? Yeah. So first. Like, there is so much fan fiction out there, and there are so many people writing fan fiction. And overlooking that is overlooking an entire writing culture that is uh, everywhere, right? And I know so many of my own students when I talk about fan fiction, have come to me after class or emailed me sort of in secret being like, I write fan fiction. (laughs) It's sort of this like confessional moment of like, I do that. (laughs) I participate in fandoms. So there's sort of, you know, that, that validation, right? That the work that fan writers are doing is important. Uh, Second, a lot of fan fiction is written by um, people who are, uh, marginalized in some way, right, or don't sort of have uh, access to certain power. So there's a lot of queer people who write fan fiction. There's a lot of women who write fan fiction. There's a lot of people of color who write fan fiction. And these communities are really built by uh, by these people, right? Um, in, in sort of first wave fan fiction, a lot of the focus was on women. Um, 
and how women, you know, were publishing fanzines and sending them to each other, right? But uh, it now there's sort of this understanding that fan fiction is this like giant heterogeneous space where there's so many different types of people, but who is really driving it are women, uh, queer people and people of color. Um, so that sort of work uh, is important to look at, right? Why is why is the idea of reimagining a source text so crucial for people? Uh, and part of the reason is because it pushes against ideas of like ownership, right? Uh, part of the reason is because a lot of us don't really see ourselves in popular culture and want to. Uh, part of it is because it's like just fun, right? It's like this like really uh, fun endeavor. Endeavor. Uh, it's you know it's, it gets called sort of a labor of love, right? Um, but yeah, it's I mean it's this like incredibly complex and uh, heterogeneous community and culture. Uh, and ignoring it is ignoring <laughs> millions of writers, right? <laughs> this dissertation sounds simply fantastic and amazing and so interesting. Um, let's break it down and talk about it a little bit further. Let's start by talking a little bit about your methods and or your methodology. Um, how did you design this project and what did you do? Yeah, so um, I am... Really interesting. So I guess the sort of framework that I'm working within is is the idea of critical fan studies. And critical fan studies is driven by um, fan scholars like Alexis Lathayan, Andre Carrington, Abigail DeKosnick, uh, Rukmini Pandai, and so many others um, who are really invested in looking at fans who are explicitly resisting systems of power and dominant ideologies. Um, Currently in fan studies, there's becoming much more of a focus on racism in fandoms and anti-racist practices in fandoms. Um, so my work is built off of that idea. Uh, and the sort of methods that I employ um, to do that uh, are uh, doing large corpus analysis and sort of more qualitative coding of interviews. So I have two main data sets that I'm working with. I'm working with um, The Legend of Korra and Game of Thrones fan fictions published on Archive of Our Own. Uh, and I think there's about 30,000 of them or something like that. Um, and so for each fan fiction, there's metadata and then there's the text itself. And the metadata includes things like character tags and additional tags and relationships. And those are uh, chosen by the fan author. So you can look at really cool patterns and trends that happen across time, uh, which which characters are more popular in fandoms, thinking about why, which relationships are more popular and why. Um, and then I also have a set of six qualitatively coded interviews from fan authors who published in that corpus. Um, so three who wrote The Legend of Korra fan fictions and three who wrote Game of Thrones fan fictions. Uh, and part of my goal with doing sort of this mixed, uh, this approach with um, this different data set is because uh, in order to sort of understand and better articulate how fandom communities work, looking at sort of those are overarching patterns and centering fan voices and allowing them space also to like look at, talk about those patterns is extraordinarily useful. Like, like all sort of community research must involve members of the community talking about it, right? 
And I feel sort of comfortable talking about it as well because I am also a fan fiction author and, and know these these communities well. <laughs> uh, Hang on. Um, there's a curveball there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I, I You're a fan fiction author too? Yeah, I haven't written in a few years. Um, okay, fair enough. The last time I wrote was like when I was like 22 or 23. Okay. Um, but yeah, my longest fan fiction is actually longer than my dissertation. <laughs> that is incredible. Can I prod just one more question and we'll move on? Sure, yeah. What were you writing about? What was your, what was your, I don't know how... I don't know the right word. <laughs> well, I didn't know the right word. What was your site? <laughs> yes. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> you're asking like what like, kind of fan fiction did I write? Yeah, like, this interview is just falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy. Uh, I wrote a, uh, you, ever, you ever hear of the anime Death Note? No, I have not. Okay, but was so that I your wrote, Oh, yeah. It's an anime. Uh, it's called Death Note. Uh, it's like, I think, like 50 episodes long or something. I wrote a a Death Note fan fiction that took place in uh, in sort of the West. You know? yeah. It was a Western Death Note fan fiction. Hey, that's super cool. <laughs> I was like, cowboys. <laughs> Death Note has nothing to do with with fan. It was it was eighty thousand words long. Um. <laughs> That's like a very long fan fiction. Is it is that a long fan fiction? Actually, it yeah. feels long. Okay, it's definitely on the longer side. I mean, there's there's I think the longest fan fiction is like millions of words. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> but there are like it is definitely on the longer side. Um, but it's not unusual. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for letting me pick your brain a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> let's keep talking about your dissertation, though. Um, struggles. Places yeah. of even, you know what, failure, right? We learn from that, right? Oh, well, <laughs> what were some of the things you overcame to get this project done? Yeah, so um, the Critical Fan Toolkit is entirely digital, which means, um, you know, I, I sort of, I went in with sort of big dreams about what it was going to look like. Uh, okay. And publishing a digital dissertation comes with sort of a lot of choices that you have to make, right? Um, you have to think about user experience. You have to think about um, accessibility. You have to think about uh, um, sustainability and um Search engine optimization if you want to get fancy and like talk about, you know, how is Google going to like my website? <laughs> SEOs, right? <laughs> um, I, so I decided to build my entire dissertation from scratch pretty much. So I use uh, Python, the programming language Flask, which is this uh, Flask builds web applications um, and also works well with Python. It, it is Python. They hang out together. Um, and so I kind of had to learn like an, an entirely new language. Like I, I know Python, and, especially for data analysis, but I don't know Python in terms of like working with databases and stuff. And I still really like I'm struggling with databases. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a second. Um, so the sort of pains and also fun of writing a website 
um, felt sort of excruciating at points. And there were points where I was like, I really can't, I can't sort of do the thing that I was imagining. And I had to sort of accept that, right? I wanted to make um, much more interactive spaces than there are currently. And I have like a lot of visualizations that are interactive, um, but I wanted to make, you know, more sort of like search functions where you could like look at some results from like my word embedding model that like shows uh, results from the Legend of Korra texts. And I couldn't really figure out how to do that. So I kind of threw that idea away. So with doing a digital dissertation, there's sort of a lot of things and ideas that you have when you're doing the brainstorming that might not come to fruition. Um, so that was sort of something that I had to say goodbye to. <laughs> and I think another struggle is um, thinking about especially sustainability. Uh, because my dissertation is on an, a website, how was I going to also put it on like ProQuest where my you know university requires my dissertation to be published? Um, and you know, I've had a few people have been like, just put the link and that's it, right? But I also wanted to really make sure I was preserving the text and make sure that like, if someone was on, you know, like maybe like in 30 years, someone's on ProQuest and they're like, oh, I wanna look at fan studies for some reason. And, you know, my dissertation is, my text is still searchable in there. So <laughs> I wrote everything on like a Word document and then transferred that onto the web page. So it was like this like kind of extra double step that I'm constantly doing. And uh, I mentioned to you that I'm in the proofreading stage. So I'm proofreading on my Word document. And now I'm going to have to go and take all of that and move that to the website. So there's like this extra sort of labor practice that, that I'm like constantly sort of thinking through. Um, so I think that was like that that's sort of a challenge that I think everyone who's working with digital dissertations is going to find themselves running into is, is thinking about how am I going to make sure that this is sustainable and stays around for as long as ProQuest is around or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, I mean, it's been a really fun journey, though. I've, I've learned way too much about um, digital publishing and digital sustainability and still I'm baffled about the idea of databases. Like I have, um, I created like a login uh, option so people can like, you know, log in if they want. It has not, it has no reason. I just wanted to make a login site. So, you know, to see, <laughs> you know who's there and who, who stopped by. Um, <laughs> and it, it took me like months to figure out what I was doing wrong. And when I say I figured it out, I mean, I called my friend uh, who has a bachelor's in um, computer science, Avery Blankenship. Uh, and shout out to Avery Blankenship. She is getting her PhD at Northeastern also. Um, and I was like, Avery, please, I don't understand how databases work. Where are my users? <laughs> so she had to like walk me step by step through that process. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been sort of that like technical side has been uh the biggest struggle but it's also been great like there's been so many people at northeastern and beyond that have been so helpful like avery um my partner william quinn um he he works with uh python and builds apps so he's been really helpful for that um ash clark at northeastern um yeah there's just so many people who have really made the project happen <laughs> more after this would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. So now that you've, you know, the landing gear is down, right, on this project, if you will. Um, share some thoughts with folks who might want to write digital dissertations. Um, what do we need to know? Yeah. So definitely first step is sustainability, right? Is how am I going to actually keep this? So you might not want to like also build your own website, which, you know, is an endeavor that I took on and I'm happy I took it on because I wanted to sort of maintain the code that I was building because it's not for me, it's not just about the text, but it's also about the experience of navigating and all that, right? So I want to sort of keep that code, um, but not everyone has that that sort of same commitment. Um, so if you're using like a content management website like WordPress or something like that, thinking about like, how am I going to preserve my text? How am I going to preserve this experience if something happened to WordPress, for instance? Um, hopefully nothing's going to happen to WordPress, (laughs) but you know, it's always sort of that, like, how am I going to preserve that? And then of course there are other types of digital dissertations too. There's videos, there's podcasts, (laughs) you know, there's audio, right? And ProQuest is pretty nice in that it'll accept all different types of file formats. Um, so that like makes the idea of sustainability a little bit easier for that. Um, my second suggestion is to like start with a wireframe. Um, especially if you're building like a website or something, really sort of imagining what it's going to look like and how different ideas are going to link together. I mean, it's pretty much just like outlining your dissertation, but with a website, right? Um, So you're sort of laying that blueprint for yourself as you're building it. Um, What links to what? Uh, Use hyperlinks as much as possible. (laughs) Um, And I mean, that goes the same for any kind of digital dissertation again, right? Like a video or audio again. I mean, again, you know, <laughs> you got to sort of yeah. lay out that structure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do know a little bit about it. We, um, sometimes I feel like each podcast episode is a dissertation chapter, but, okay. uh, <laughs> but, I'm but, sure. I, <laughs> but, but I love doing it. Um, okay. You coded your whole website. You decided to do that. So I know, just from talking to you a little bit, that coding is something that's important to you, both in practice, but also in your scholarship. Fill us in on on, on that. Yeah. So um, I was very lucky to go to Northeastern, um, where there's a lot of digital humanists here. Um, So I had a lot of sort of 
people guiding me and teaching me how to code. Um, so I think, you know, the sort of technical side is like covered in that basis. But I think what I really lo- learned and what I really took away is the importance of feminist coding spaces and making sure to carve out feminist coding spaces and incorporating that in all of your pedagogy, especially coding pedagogy. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, my first few years at Northeastern, uh, there was the digital media, I'm sorry, digital feminist commons, I think is what they called it, which was run by uh, Liz Polcha and Nicole Keller. And we all came together. Uh, we created sort of a, a mission statement and guidelines um, and, uh, learned coding, but also had feminist discussions about coding, um, which included like, you know, how how does data, or sorry, how are ideologies embedded within data, right? How uh, how is racism embedded in data? How is misogyny and heteronormativity embedded in data? Um, and what can we do as coders to push against that or show it, right? And just like blow it up and be like, do you see how this is harmful. Um, So that space is really useful for me. And I took it over uh, in later years, which we then changed the name to Feminist Coding Collective, where again, we just kind of all came together, had conversations, learned some Python, learned some like statistics, which was terrifying and still terrifying. (laughs) Um, And uh, also Laura Nelson was really instrumental for me. Um, Laura Nelson is currently an assistant professor at Northeastern. Um, She works, uh, she is a sociologist and works in social sciences, but she uh, is interdisciplinary and works with human uh, humanities people quite often. Um, And I took a Python course with her where she really centered feminist uh, teaching practices um, where, you know, doing things like when you're done, just put a post-it, like when you're done with a code that we're working on, just put a post-it note on the back of your computer. So I can see it, but you know, you're not bringing attention to it. Right. Um, because sometimes in coding spaces, people get really competitive of like, I need to finish this first. Right. And that can be really toxic and uncomfortable space for people. Um, you know, and she would talk about guidelines of how to communicate, what kinds of questions to ask. Right. Really sort of, bringing in not feminist praxis into teaching coding. And that's something that um, I care deeply about, right? And it has shaped sort of how I see coding in general, right? I see it as this way of, um, of uh, highlighting uh, anti-racism and highlighting feminism within a data set or highlighting racism and misogyny and heteronormativity in a data set, right? Um, or sort of seeing the complexities of a data set, right? So uh, I find it extraordinarily useful. Um, and it's because of sort of the spaces and the communities that I had that I was able to learn coding, become comfortable with it, and hopefully teach it at Jacksonville State. <laughs> so there are other things I want to talk to you about, including um publications, awards, but let's start with the grant that you were awarded or your team was awarded in 2019-2020, a C's research grant, uh, Super Diversity in Context, a corpus-based study of multilingual writing outcomes with attention to disparate impact. Uh, What is that study about? How's it going a couple years later? (laughs) Yeah, 
So uh, I was awarded that grant with um, Maya Poe and Sharice Jones, uh, who is also a graduate student at Northeastern with me, a PhD uh, student. And uh, we were, well, we, okay, so it sort of started because the writing program at Northeastern has an assessment committee that collects data and does sort of assessment work. And they were collecting data from students um, across a semester. Uh, so there's sort of three main meta genres that they're collecting. There is a descriptive, um, argumentative, or research genres, and reflection genres. Um, so we have uh, texts from, you know, I think like 500 students or something like that, Northeastern. Um, and each of those were coded by faculty in the program, um, sort of holistic scores on, you know, how well does this student write pretty much, right? Uh, but and then there's also sort of trait scores about, um, uh, you know, does this student meet genre expectations? Does a student know their audience? Um, there's questions about grammar uh, and all that. So we had this like beautiful, large set of data that has the coders metadata and the students texts. And we're really interested in looking at how uh, there are particular standards that uh, professors and people who are doing sort of writing assessment go into when they're uh, when they're reviewing texts. So that was sort of like our, our inspiration that led to the grant. And we decided to focus on super diversity um, because super diversity brings into account students' identities, but it also brings into account uh, how they're moving, uh, like literally moving across, you know, uh, different countries and all that. Um, we have a lot of international students in Northeastern, so we really wanted to make sure that that was the framework that we're working with it, right? How students are like, how students' movement is actually also impacting their writing. So we're sort of coming in with like all these different approaches, um, but we have this data set and we wanted to really work with it. So we applied for the grant um, because we wanted to pretty much like my want to make sure that Teresa and I were getting paid while we were doing this work. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> That's good. That's important. Um, and we've been working with um, Chen Chen Zhang Wu and, uh, and Devin Reagan, who is an undergraduate at Northeastern, who is also getting paid from the grant, too. Um, and we've been working with this data set, talking quite a lot about um, how, uh, how multilingual writers are, are sort of just don't have like one identity and don't sort of have one type of writing style. Um, and we are looking at uh, the data that we collected and the coders data that we collected, um, but we're also doing interviews with students. Um, we also have a survey of demographic questions that we're asking students that are about uh, their high school experience uh, and about how they identify, if they identify as multilingual or not. Um, we also have like uh, some of the data from like institutional data, um, like if student is international or not. But of course, being international doesn't mean that, first of all, it doesn't mean that you're multilingual and there's a lot of domestic students who are also multilingual. So we're sort of trying to break down uh, uh, different binaries and uh, break down sort of the idea that identity markers can tell us how someone writes explicitly. Um, 
I hope I'm like sort of doing the grant justice. (laughs) (laughs) I think you are. Definitely not my expertise. The thing that I really am looking at is the data uh, and doing sort of corpus linguistic work on the data um, and trying to sort of help out where I can. But I feel like Maya and Sharice are really like, Maya, Sharice uh, and Chen Chen are really like the experts here, right? Um, So they probably have a lot better, a lot better things to say than I do. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of your publications then. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about one that you've got the proposal accepted at Computers and Composition Online. Um, you know, I should, I'm should. i a bad, bad podcaster because I didn't check the title of this work <laughs> before <laughs> I, you. I forgot it too. Let me go and, look at it. <laughs> well, it's, I got the post colon, Coding Rhetorics and Ephemeral Code in Doki Doki Literature Club, right? But I... I don't have the pre-colon. <laughs> I think it's, it's something like rmmonica.chr. That's right. That's what right? I yeah. <laughs> So how would you like, if you were presenting like, this is my presentation, how, how would you say that? Oh God, that's, I, I think it would just be, ooh, like remove Monica's character file. That's probably how I would say it. Okay. Um, the rm refers to remove used in, uh, in bash or max like um command line uh so what it's saying is rm remove monica.chr is the character file monica okay Um, so what the game wants you to do is it wants you to go into the back end uh and look at its actual files and it's sort of its code a little bit um and it wants you to delete things and move things around right so it like invites you to play with its back end okay Uh, so, so that's sort of what the the like beginning title is about. <laughs> and what's the work about? So um, I am really interested in uh, Doki Doki Literature Club is a video game that is a horror dating simulator, <laughs> and um, it sort of takes up all of the um, conventions of a dating simulator. Um, you know where you have four different women characters to choose from or three different women characters to choose from. And they all like play into these sort of very anime girl tropes, right? There's like a cute one and then there's sort of a darker mysterious one. And there's sort of like the best friend who you feel really close to. And then there's Monica. <laughs> so Monica is, you can't actually choose to like try to date Monica. You can try to date the other three characters, but you can't try to date Monica. So it starts off like a very normal dating simulator and you're trying to date these three girls and figure out who you want to choose. Uh, it's Doki Doki Literature Club. So you're in a literature club with them, you know, and they're all flirting with you. Um, and Monica is the president of the club. And you can't really, the only sort of ways that she prompts you to interact with her is by choosing the other girls through her. Uh, and the sort of horror element that comes about is uh Monica realizes that they're in a dating simulator. So what she does is she sort of takes over the code and she begins to play with it. And in doing that, like, you know, pretty much kills the other characters in these really gruesome and horrific ways. So it's really jarring to sort of move from this like playful, conventional, if not a little bit sexist, okay, very sexist sort of dating simulator, right? To like, the horror of this, right, of being sort of trapped in this game. 
Um, and I don't really know if the video game would like label itself as a feminist text, but I'm sort of looking at it through a feminist lens. Um, and what I'm really interested in is this sort of experience that the game is um, capturing, uh, the experience that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of women and, and a lot of uh, gender nonconforming or really anyone who's like not a cis man kind of experiences of your fit into these particular tropes and roles uh, and uh, you're sort of objectified and always sort of gazed upon, um, but you don't really necessarily have any agency and you're stuck in this constant loop and that sort of horror of not being able to have any control over that. Uh, and Monica for me is is that that moment of liberation, right? Of this, I'm going to literally change the system, right? Uh, and I'm going to fight back. Um, so, uh, and and that work in like finishing the game and beating the game. I, I do scare quotes because you don't really beat the game. I'll talk about that in a second. It's kind of like this horribly sad happy ending. Um, you have to also go into the back code to sort of, again, remove char uh, Monica's character file, right, in order to progress in the game. So the game invites you to sort of play with these codes just as Monica does. And the sort of happy ending of the game is Monica has accepted that she is a character in this game and is sad and sort of deleted, but she's still like this sort of ghostly vision when you continue to play the game. And uh, the rest of the women in the game are like, thank you for saving us. We're going to be here when you come back. And it's like this very sort of tragic ending where they're like, we'll be here when you come back. Uh, and it's this reminder uh, of, of, again, these sort of the ways that these systems push us and, and, and force us to follow through the same types of loops and perform within the same loops over and over again. And one of the features of the game is that you have to play the same thing over and over again in order to get to the happy ending. You have to go through the exact same steps over and over and over again. Um, so it's sort of forcing you to like be part of this loop um, and experience that like, pain and irritation and inability to control things because you're just stuck here. Um, so I'm sort of approaching it from that that angle um, and looking at how coding practices can be liberatory in, in sort of forcing to like people to sort of see the systems that we're working within and then push against them. Um, and the way, the way I want to do that through the web text, again, these are sort of all big dreams. I'm still working on it. But the way I want to do that through the web text is asking people who are reading the web text to go into the back end of the web text too. So they have to make change. And I'll, like, I'll provide documentation, of course, how to do that. But they have to make changes in order to see different parts and experience different parts of the article. Um, that, is, that is so cool. That is yeah, such a brilliant I, idea. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. I'm like very excited. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, okay, the first thing I thought was like choose your own adventure thing, but it's right. it's kind of like that, but yeah. like not exactly like that, yeah. right? Yeah. It it it's it is 
it is very similar to choose your own adventure, but like with a twist. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, for I mean, sure. fingers, fingers, it might not get accepted. You know, it's still like the web text proposal has been accepted, but we'll see, you know, how peer reviewers like it. But I'm hoping that even if it gets rejected, you know, I can send it somewhere else too. So Absolutely. fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's talk about something else you've been working on recently. Um, and that's an article uh, draft titled, a manuscript titled, Black Lives Matter Digital Activism, Critical Digital Pedagogy in a Writing for Social Media Course. And that's under review at Spark, uh, a 4C4 Equality Journal. Um, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so I recently got a revise and resubmit, so I'm working on the revisions now. So again, not guaranteed. Um, but uh, the article is about a course I taught in early summer 2020, uh, which it was a writing for social media course. And of course, early summer 2020 was when the murder of George Floyd happened. Uh, and we saw sort of in mainstream media uh, and in our networks, a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? The Black Lives Matter movement has been around since 2013. And of course the ethos behind it has been around since before America has been around, right? Um, but we saw this resurgence. So a lot of my students were uh, in sort of their early stages of learning about activism and learning about anti-racism and learning about Black Lives Matter. And in my writing for social media class, the course itself was already sort of focused on digital activism, uh, how people create community, uh, things like content moderation, um, things like hashtags, right, uh, how information can spread. Uh, and then, of course, the actual writing practices we do in all of that. So my course towards the end became much more focused on providing a space for students to explore their own digital activist identities um, and sort of become the digital activists that they want to become. So a lot of students were coming in sort of a different points uh, in their activist journey, right? Some already experienced and knew about sort of the racism in America and the anti-Blackness in America. Um, some uh, just didn't really know about it at all, right? Some were international students who had never really thought about anti-Blackness in America. So we were all sort of coming at this at different points in our journey. And I wanted to give everyone space to explore what Black Lives Matter meant and means, um, as well as give them space to create activist materials so that they could also speak back to their networks uh, and reshape their own networks and push their networks to see and understand why Black Lives Matter is important. Um, some students chose not to talk about Black Lives Matter, but most students did. So students wrote Facebook posts, they created infographics, uh, they tweeted, right? They did sort of all these different forms of social media composing, all focused on what can I do um, to transform my networks, right? And to push my networks to understand why Black Lives Matter is necessary. Uh, so I'm writing about that in that article and reflecting on that process, um, you know, talking about sort of the context, right? Northeastern is, uh, it's not, I don't think it's technically a, um, uh, a uh, what is it called? 
I don't think it's a, it's a, a primarily P- white institution. PWI? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the name. Of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's technically a PWI, but um, the reason is because uh, like 20% or so of uh, the, our demographic data is um, non-residential alien, which removes and erases race from the data. But I do think a lot of our international students come from China. Um but anyway, like, so it's not technically a PWI, but, you know, it kind of is. <laughs> I mean, not kind of, it, it, it isn't, but there are a lot of white people <laughs> uh, and not a lot of black students, right? Like, more specifically, there are not a lot of black students at Northeastern. Um, so that was sort of the context that I was going into uh, approaching this as sort of everyone was is at their own sort of different stages in this journey uh, and giving them space to explore. Um, and I uh, also provide some awesome student work uh, in the article that um, students have agreed to publish. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, just sort of a way to talk about what that process is like. And, you know, the sort of very real like being at a Black Lives Matter protest, thinking about my potential students that are also at that protest, how to carry that into the classroom, right? Um, And how to push them to see this work as extending beyond the classroom and beyond higher education. Yeah, excellent. That sounds like some excellent, super cool work. Uh, (laughs) And I know you've been acknowledged for your work in the classroom uh, too. Let's talk about this special issue editorship uh, that you're that's in progress. You're working right now on a um, special issue of Digital Humanities Quarterly that's titled right now Black Studies in for the Rising DH Generation. Who are you working with on that and what's that project about? Yeah, so I am working currently with uh, Alana Prince and Dr. Isetta Autumn Mobley. Um, and I love them both. They are two just wonderful people and working with them has been an amazing experience. Um, So the special issue is, I think it's sort of moved from even beyond its title where we're really just doing black digital humanities, right? And understanding black digital humanities as its own discipline. Okay. um, Which I'm really excited about. And there has been so much work already being done on this. Uh, ADHUM at uh, University of Maryland, which is the African-American History, Culture, and Digital Humanities uh, Project, um, which really focuses on Black digital humanities. Uh, And they've been doing incredible work. So our special issue was really trying to give space, especially for graduate students who are invested in Black digital humanities. Um, And it sort of came about, uh, Alana Prince and I were talking, uh, Alana is one of my colleagues at Northeastern who is absolutely brilliant. Um, But we were talking about sort of how uh, there hadn't been a special issue on race in digital humanities. So there's been special issues on like feminism and in DH um, and other instances, but we wanted to propose a special issue about race in digital humanities. And um, we reached out to Dr. Isetta Automobly and uh, it became sort of a special issue on black digital humanities specifically. And so uh, we sort of crafted the CFP together. Uh, we 
spent a lot of time thinking about how to make the process as transparent as possible, especially because a lot of the people that we wanted to publish were grad students and are grad students, right? So a lot of grad students don't really know about the peer review publishing process. So we wanted to sort of make that steps as transparent as possible. Um, So when we sent out the CFP, you know, we, we sort of disseminated it within our networks as much as we could. And we have uh, we we sort of crafted workshops about what writing a proposal would look like, and then sort of the next steps after that, right? If your proposal is accepted, what happens? Um, so we gave space for uh, people interested in submitting special issue, submitting to the special issue, a place to brainstorm and talk with us and get to sort of understand the process a little bit more. And it's a process that the three of us are still learning ourselves. <laughs> like we've never done a special issue before, <laughs> so we're still always learning about the process. Uh, but we're at now the point where we uh, have accepted all the proposals and. The people who are writing uh, have submitted their articles and they are in the peer review process, um, which has also been a very long process. <laughs> uh, and we want to make sure that uh, we are really careful with who we're choosing to be peer reviewers. We want to make sure that the peer reviewers are invested in Black digital humanities. Something that we're really worried about is gatekeeping practices that happen in uh, in peer review journals. And we wanna make sure that this is not ratifying those practices. Um, so we've been really careful about who we've been selecting for peer review, um, how we've been sort of framing the special issue when we invite people to peer review and all that. Um, so currently the articles are under review. I've met amazing people through uh, this process. Uh, and we also have a series of meta reflections by um, more sort of well-known DH scholars, um, such as Moya Bailey. Um, I think Jessica Marie Johnson might be uh, sending in a meta reflection as well that talk about sort of the black DH field. Um, so it's been a wonderful process and I've learned so much from both Alana and Izetta. Uh, and I am very lucky to sort of be doing this and uh, getting this work done and making that space in a special issue that hopefully continues to carry outside of that special issue too, right? Black DH is a specific subfield, but it's not a niche field, right? It should be centralized in digital humanities. What else do we need to talk about before you head off to enjoy the rest of your afternoon? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I feel like we I feel like we've covered quite a bit. Is there any other questions that you have for me about anything? That was the last one. Uh, so, yeah, thank you uh, yeah. for coming on and chatting with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and I tell everyone this, but I really mean it I, to everyone, too. Like, if we can ever go to conferences again, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I look forward to meeting you in person for sure. <laughs> Thank you. I do as well. And hopefully, you know, if you go back to Alabama and I'm in Alabama, yes. we can hang out. <laughs> I'll have to give you a couple pointers off record. So yes, yes please. <laughs> have a good Thank afternoon. You. Thank you so, so much for doing this also. This is really amazing work that you've been doing.
hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Messina. Don't forget to submit your nominations for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award highlights graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. To be eligible for this award, Nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2020-2021 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Advance critical conversations in the discipline through the publication of scholarship, refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. To nominate someone for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, and a 200-word bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meets the above criteria. Use the subject line Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 15, 2021, and self-nominations are welcome. For more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com or visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. Um, We have a ton of nominations, so make sure to get yours in by May 15th and donate to the cause if you can. You can find our nonprofit information and GoFundMe information pinned to our Twitter page at The Big Rep. Don't forget about the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming in August. The Carnival already has more participating podcasts than in our inaugural year, and we're probably going to add a few more. Remember, our podcast Carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and the community. We hope to announce our keynote speaker before the end of Season 4. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this week's podcast is brought to you by Corey Anchors, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Check them out on Insta at HeyBuddyCC or HeyBuddyCC.com. Admiral Bob and Dr. Turtle.